Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us today and long overdue is Barb McLean, Director of Application Development at Solero. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Barb. Such a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for being so supportive of our work all the time. And now for those of you who don't follow Barb on social, stop everything you do right now, pause and do that on Twitter, Barb McLean, B-A-R-B-M-A-C-L-E-A-N. She can be your phone a friend, Star Wars trivia. And she had also recently done a karaoke session with Mr. Skinner. So search for that or we'll post it later. Um, before we start, Barb, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do at Solero? Sure. So Solero is a credit union services organization. If there's uh, some element of technology that has been provided to a credit union in Canada over time, chances are we've done some of that. Um, you know, we focus mainly on provisioning of banking related services. So uh, banking payments and integration are um, the things that we do best and the things that we're passionate about. I've become quite fortunate over the last little while that the team that I'm uh, working with directly has had the opportunity to build up a, a new integration platform that really has been the keystone of many of our customers' digital transformation strategy. And so we all quickly realized that if you want to be able to move at the speed that your members want, you actually need to be able to leverage the data that you hold in trust for them on their behalf. And so it's all about, you know, coordinating and securing and, and providing those new delightful experiences that everyone is seeking. I love that you uh, are working with credit unions and, you know, I, I don't think that people appreciate how many credit unions there are sort of chugging along across the globe. Um, we actually carved out uh, several pages in Beyond Good coming out in March. Uh, about credit unions and just just to see the the amount of companies sort of surrounding uh, credit unions to make sure that the model continues to thrive is great to see. Um, you and I were, were on a panel for Montreal Connect. Um, we just talked about it before we got on. It was back in October and it feels like it was just yesterday, but then again, October seems so long ago. But what we talked about was the the digital divide, sort of this this inability for everyone to sort of have this equal access uh, for technology and for even internet basics. In the age of streaming and remote work and remote education, it's so important that everybody's connected, but it's not something that we think about. How big of a problem is this in Canada? And can you tell us about the infrastructure there? You know, I think it certainly mirrors a lot of the experiences that you all continue to share of, of what you see directly happening in the US. And as with many things, there is a great parallel um, of what's happening here in Canada as well. Sometimes though, it's, it's a bit larger of a problem, but um, being that, you know, a bit of Canadian culture is that you don't toot your horn too much. Sometimes you don't talk about the problems to the same degree either. Um, you know, if you think about the fact that uh, geography wise, Canada is the second largest country in the world, um, but we're probably somewhere on the order of 185th in terms of, you know, population. So you combine those two things together and 90% of Canadians live within 160 kilometers of the American border. But what about the rest of those 10 million square kilometers? Uh, there's an awful lot of people that live in that vastness. And when you've got uh, such a small number of people to contribute to the tech base that is supposed to help build up that infrastructure, 
it very quickly becomes problematic on how you're actually going to deliver services uh, equitably to everybody, no matter where they choose to live. Um, you know, so I would say that not only do I have sort of a personal perspective on some of the challenges that can present, I typically in my entire life have lived in uh, smaller rural uh, locations, uh, you know, grew up learning to drive on a tractor, right? So certainly the rural background um, informs me personally. Um, going back to your comment about why credit unioning is quite important to financial services, I've been a credit union member since 1978. So, you know, that certainly has informed me as an individual. Uh, it's certainly informed where I've found my place in the kind of work and passion that I've pursued in working with credit unions for my entire career. Uh, credit unions themselves certainly have an interesting role to play in that, especially in Canada, where they, from a physical branch network standpoint, um, actually have a larger branch network as compared to any of the large five financial institutions in Canada. And those are distributed much more, uh, you know, highly in those small rural centers. Uh, quite often, the credit union will be the only game in town in terms of a physical branch presence. And as much as, you know, things have objectively changed for everyone over the last year and how we're um, either wanting to or needing to consume services in a much more digital way, uh, the basics in being able to access the infrastructure to do so simply just don't exist in some communities. Uh, you know, lack of uh, fiber or cable broadband to get to that community, or if it's in the community, you know, the residents of that community are missing that last mile. So there's a hodgepodge of capabilities there across a whole host of, you know, my fellow Canadians where, um, you know, we've got a lot of stories on, um, you know, students trying to get through their remote learning and they literally don't have internet connectivity at home. So, you know, they go to the lo local Tim Hortons to camp out in the parking lot to get the Wi-Fi. Um, we have some of our credit unions that have been publicly provisioning the Wi-Fi in their branches. So as much as the branch locations are closed, they've been now offering that as a free service to the community because they know that there's this gap. And because of their own needs as, an, as a business, they've provisioned that capability for themselves and have now chosen to open that up because they, they see the gap uh, that's there for, for the folks in their communities. So um, absolutely that, that digital divide is quite clear along the urban and rural um, areas in Canada. I mean, it's fair to characterize Canada sort of as uh, a number of cascading 80-20 rules, right? If you, if you don't live in the GTA around Toronto, people in downtown Toronto kind of don't, you know, they just have never had that experience and, and don't quite often get out of, um, you know, their their homes and their office towers to, to see how the rest of us live, I guess I would put it. I almost want to draw a parallel um, with what you're saying between what we see in a lot of the coastal cities compared to the rest of the United States. Um, and it goes both ways. I remember living in the Midwest for a year for work and people there could not understand why I needed to drive to Chicago on the weekends. They were like, what do we have in this great state that you could not get that you had to go to the city? And there were so many people that worked with me in that particular office that had never left their home states. 
And it was it was dumbfounding to me because I, I was like, wait, I don't I don't understand. There was so much more to see outside of of here. Um, but you know, I, I think. Um, and and to your point about the digital divide, it is an important thing that we need to solve banking and beyond, because that is the fundamental enabler for people to have upward social mobility for them to actually get access because we are all in the connected world. Um, so speaking of which, and speaking of Canada, let's talk about the startup ecosystem. Now, there has been some migration, shall we say, from the US to Canada in terms of talent, um, especially in the area of AI. I've had friends who debated whether or not Montreal versus Alberta, which one is the AI hub for Canada. Um, what are some of the opportunities that you see that companies are embracing at the moment? So yeah, that's that's an interesting topic for sure, and I I think both you know Edmonton and Alberta and Montreal, as you say, are are two places where that's very strongly growing. There's actually a really interesting um, flavor of that that you know is very much um, Manitoba relevant to speak about you know the area around Winnipeg where I am now. It's actually in in relation to ag tech, which is of course completely relevant to such a. Um, uh, you know, an, an area of the country that uh, has such uh, use of that natural resource here, right? Very strong foundation in, in agriculture as an industry. And so there is these little pockets that are even unknown to those of us that uh, have a good view of the broad landscape on. There's a lot of things happening, um, but they remain relatively unknown. Um, some of them are growing in prominence. Um, I think the Calgary area is one that's interesting to observe. Um, you know, they've gone through some very difficult times there because of their traditional dependence on energy sector and oil um, and are looking to help, you know, move beyond that as the centerpiece of what they do. So fintech is becoming a bit interesting if you're in the Calgary space as well. You know, Neo Financial would be one good example. Um, and there's a pursuit of some of these repeat entrepreneurs because Neo Financial is being grown up by the same folks that built Skip the Dishes, which happens to have, you know, had its start here in Winnipeg as well. Um, and so there's this, there's a bit of that cycle of entrepreneurs and investment that you can see happening in some of those places. Uh, but it's fair to say that so much of the pockets of that are happening in larger centers like Vancouver. You know, they've got a really great grounding around, you know, the, the gaming industry and sort of the, the um, you know, visual style of, of there's innovation happening there. And of course, they also have a very strong uh, tie to, you know, Hollywood and producing movies and the like. So there's, you know, there's a really good center of excellence there from that perspective. But the core of, you know, fintech um, are unarguably still resides in Toronto because that is the place where the financial services giants have their um, grounding. You know, they've got a really strong um, presence of universities and, you know, the close proximity to the Kitchener-Waterloo area where RIM grew out of, right? So just that larger Southern Ontario belt between, you know, Kitchener to Ottawa, uh, Ottawa being the home of Shopify. There's so many good things happening. You know, there is this bit of cultural construct that Canadians have where we're, we probably are, are less um, uh, forward on some of the things we do well than, than our cousins to the south. Um, and so we don't often celebrate those successes either. So having um, 
you know, organizations like Shopify take center stage on a global level are really important for everyone else to understand all of the good things that are happening here. Getting back into to banking a bit, you know, directly, and you think about the Canada market, I'm kind of looking at some of these stats here. There's obviously the big five. You have RBC, so the Royal Bank of Canada. You have TD, Toronto Dominion Bank, Bank of Nova Scotia, uh, Bank of Montreal, and the CIBC, the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. Uh, there are 30 or so domestic banks. There's about 28 foreign banks that have a presence in Canada, and there's about 250 credit unions. So when you when you think about that market in a population, like you said, that's a little under 40 million, which is about where California is, and you think about that number of banks, how do you think post-COVID the, the banking industry is going to change? How is that landscape going to change? Are you going to see consolidation? Is it going to be more opened up? There's been a trend of consolidation, um, certainly amongst the credit union space in Canada, and that is absolutely going to continue and potentially accelerate as well. Um, you know, we have the pleasure of working with all manner of credit unions here in Canada. Some of them are extremely small and have a very specific geographic focus, right? Single branch credit union has six employees serve their surrounding community of about a thousand people right and they literally are the cornerstone of those communities there might be you know one other business there in addition to them um you know going up to those that actually have either a much larger presence and you know multiples more members um even those that are seeking the relatively new national charter for credits to be able to offer services nationally um but you know, very similar trends as as the American market. I think you know every second day there's a new set of regulations that everyone has to uphold, and you know the members are demanding more from an experience point of view. And how do you make sure you've made the right technology investments to get you there to be able to keep up when you compare the banking and the credit union side of the financial services space? You know, quite a similar refrain is what we hear from other geographies. I think on you know, hundreds of millions and billions of dollars are being invested in technology. And you think about that small one branch credit union and the fact that they, you know, literally have never seen that, that number of zeros in their balance sheet, you know, ever in their history and probably never will. So an organization like Solero is, is so well positioned to help them, um, you know, coalesce around some efficiencies and economies of scale and offering capabilities that they can then build that specific member experience that they're seeking. But there's no question uh, in the environment that is out there right now where it seems like there's an ever accelerating cost of technology to provision the services that you need as people continue to seek out more digital and less uh, in person. And how do you avoid completely divorcing the humans uh, as as that progression continues. I think there is more discussion of that variety that needs to continue to happen. And, you know, think about the vast number of folks that are just working across that industry and landscape. And how do we continue to work with them to transition them into the new role that they need to play? And, you know, it's no longer the fact that you're manning a teller station in a physical branch and you stamped this form to perform this action and we're waiting on the line of people to serve. How do we help them actually transform 
their skill set so that they're also relevant to providing the human touch within that digital construct that their, their end members are seeking. So let's stay with that theme a little bit. Um, the last, I don't know, 10, 11 months, however long it has been, is, I think we all agree, is, is extraordinary, not the normal. Um, how has that impacted lives in general in Canada and in banking industry in Canada? Because I almost feel like these experiences are very geographical dependent, right? Depends on, you know, if you're, I don't know, like, Earlier today, I was talking to someone in Europe, and even in Europe, depends on which country you are, their experience and their expectation, right, of what they need to do are different as well. So how has it been for you? So I think in many ways, I was um, personally a bit insulated from what has happened, generally speaking. I've said to a few folks over the last series of months, it does start to validate some of your life choices to live in a rather sparsely populated area of the world, and you can just sort of go and hide in your own bubble. And that you know you have the means and the privilege of being able to be sustaining in that kind of way, and so I completely recognize that you know in, in and of myself as well. Um, you know, so I think you know speaking of the 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 area in which I live, it was relatively um, low impact to us as you think about the March April June timeframe. Um, you know our area was down to a single active case in the July timeframe, right? We thought that it was a small blip in time for us and that was going to be it. Um, much like others though, that have seen the second wave of COVID come, that has been true for us here, uh, sort of in the center of the country, that's been broadly speaking true uh, across Canada. I think it's been really quite interesting to see though, because you know there's a, a lot of miles between the Pacific and the Atlantic that we occupy the the cultural and geographic differences and how that has played out. Uh, the folks in the Atlantic region of Canada have you know kind of banded together. That's a, an assembly of relatively small population um, provinces. It, it's very much informed by the neighbors helping neighbors kind of culture. And I think they um, did well in the way that they banded together and sort of created their own bubble across the entire Atlantic region of Canada and have then fared relatively well from a sort of health and safety point of view as we think about the impact of COVID. Um, you know, we, we occupy this interesting space between similarities to what happens in the United States and similarities to happens, uh, what happens in Europe. And that's true in, in all things, I think in that um, there's a lot of concern on, you know, do people even understand the message coming out from the folks that are leading the public health initiatives and, you know, a desire for people to be able to continue to exercise their free will and make their own decisions. And that certainly has come to a culture clash in other places and continues to do so here. When, when you think about, you know, sort of the, the market and, you know, the experience within Canada of some sort of being open, closed and, you know, the rest of Europe and the U.S. in comparison, and you think about going back to the business model of financial services and fintech, um, there's so many, you know, fintechs beyond Shopify when you start looking. 
And, you know, you look at the type of funding that is happening at companies like Bench, you know, 50 million and Blockstream, 100 million and Borrowwell and Canalyst, CoinSquare, all these companies. Uh, the market in Canada, again, for 40 million people, is more representative of sort of a worldview of fintech itself. There's a lot more investment going into these startups because these startups are focused on more than just the Canadian market. And so I think that people, you know, they don't think about how much is happening there. Well, in the U.S., Jamie Dimon recently said just last week that J.P. Morgan Chase should be absolutely scared. And there's a word in there I can't say or explicit uh, about this fintech threat. So he's scared again uh, about companies like Plaid. Um, so in, given that there's so much funding happening with fintech startups in Canada, and obviously so much you know going on in the world, are we going back to the cycle where bankers think fintech is going to eat their lunch and fintech is going to you know take their margins and all that fun stuff again? Why are we going back from this collaborative place that we just came from post-COVID into this sort of you know us against them thing? What's going on? To me, it felt like a you know I'm trying to give my leaders and my organization that burning platform. You know, I think there's been a lot of discussions over what digital transformation actually means to all of us inside of our organizations and inside of our industries. And, you know, it's now one of those buzzwords that we almost don't want to talk about anymore because what has been the result of it? Um, you know, they, I, I don't want to make too many assumptions about, you know, in, intent of words from, from us. It certainly seemed to be that variety of discussion on you know, are we actually paying close enough attention to what's happening in the market around us? And felt like by making that public and however that did, maybe not. So, you know, do all of us try to ensure that those that are working with us in our organizations are actually having our eye on the ball in the right way? And that giving that right area of focus and, and thinking about, you know, if there is a way that these other organizations have found this path to success and greatness and whatever other thing is attracting you to say they're doing a good thing. What is it about us? Let's be introspective now on why, why can't we be operating in the same way, modeling those same behaviors, um, seeking out the right outcomes for the customers that are clearly interested in what all of those fintech styles are doing. Um, you know, I, I, I think maybe I'll borrow from some of Chris Skinner's commentary on this, this same kind of um, posting. Uh, to say that, you know, that's one part of it, but, you know, have have they found a way to translate that into what the new vision for themselves is? You know, are have they been able to take stock? And it's the same question I think we should all be asking ourselves. Have we taken stock of what's happened over the last year and figured out actually what the reset of the new vision of ourselves is? How we can be better serving the communities that, you know, we do serve today and those that we should. I think the other sort of underlying construct of all of that commentary for me was this is this needs to stop being a zero-sum game um, there's so many people that can make their fortunes in life better if we can find the right way to help them do so um, right i i think i'll borrow another phrase from someone else uh you know this isn't coming from me but there's an awful lot of people in canada in the united states other places that have too much month left at the end of the money. And never has that been more exposed, I think, than this last series of months where, you know, people are losing their jobs, their businesses are folding. And if we haven't been able, you know, sort of as the folks that are trying to guide what's happening in financial services and FinTech and the portion of, 
you know, the construct of how that gets delivered, if we haven't figured that out, and that is our mandate to help um, the folks that need us most, we've actually completely missed the point. I, I absolutely totally love what you say in here. I wish I could just like hit replay on, on everything you just said in the last minute. If you were to have your way though, right? You talk about, you know, what is the new vision of what we need in light of what has happened the last nine months, um, understanding where people are hurting, understanding what people need. If you have that magic wand, what would you like to see happen? So I think um, as we're resetting, you know, we've had a turn of the calendar here. Everybody's thinking about what they're going to do in the new year. I think there's an awful lot of, you know, hope and aspiration for better, maybe more so than in years past that we're all thinking about what's happening right now. Um, if, if we're all focusing on those that we can help the most and, you know, as they grow in their success in life, whatever that means to them, how do we share in that success with them and use that to translate back into the business model of what we do because at the end of the day we all work for a business whether it's ours our own or someone else's um, you know how do we stop being so focused on the quarterly earnings report and that very short-term thinking of you know i need to drive my revenue uh, because that's all that someone else is seeking of me it's, I think, why the model of credit unions and that cooperative spirit has drawn me from the front of my career up until now, in that it's, it's less about, you know, the profit-making machine and how you're helping the people in your community, how you're helping others that are like-minded to you. And so I think the mechanism that you seek these grander things is by finding those like-minded people. It's why I'm so happy to be talking to people like you, right? You find the ways to seek out those folks that think in the same way that you do to seek a better future for others because you've been put in a position of privilege to be able to share in the goodness and share in the wealth and the opportunity that you've been given. It's not about accumulating it for yourself or for your organization. It needs to be about um, spreading that out to those that haven't yet been given that opportunity. And how do you pass that on? Uh, because somebody along the way gave you the opportunity to be where you are. Um, how do you make that happen for at least one other person, right? If you stand back at the end of your life and reflect on the good things you've done, if you could make a significant change to one other person, would that have been worth it? And then how do you scale making that happen? If you were in front of me right now, Burke, I would have given you a big bear hug. <laughs> And I would have taken it, not a hugger, but uh, I've, I've certainly um, really missed that kind of point of human interaction. Um, when you find the kind of community that is growing uh, around these kind of discussions, you know, the ability to contribute it so that you are individually making a difference, even just by being involved in the discussion has become quite clear and apparent to me. Um, but at the end of all of it, the, the thing that's important is, you know, how you interacted with your fellow humans as you go and how you chose to leave your positive mark. And if that can continue to inform everything that you do, uh, because, you know, gone are the days that your work self and your 
home self are completely divorced from each other. It's all just embedded in a pile now. Uh, if you can bring that authentic person to everything you do, um, you, you will make your mark and make your difference. I think one of the things that's going to come out of all this this past year and this sort of um, isolation and stasis, and I don't know what this whole thing is, even after 10 months, I don't know what this whole thing is, is that there's a lot of introverts that are going to at least be momentarily extroverted. And uh, we will uh, meet you in person, Barb, at one of these places. And we talked before the break about um, almost meeting you, I think, in Vegas uh, a couple of years back, it seems, at this point in many 2020. And I just, you know, there, there will be a time, you know, when we will have the tribe uh, and a growing tribe back together again at these events. And I just, um, I really, really think that post this with all the madness and all the despair that there will be solace in seeking, you know, the connectivity to human beings again. I, I think that that is something that everybody needs. So uh, we'll, we'll get there. We will get there. And I look forward to the day, certainly more than I think I ever anticipated that I would. I think events company will be very happy because what this means is when we do go back to in-person events, I hope and I do think it's going to be quite crowded and we look forward to it. I will not like complain about travel anymore. Let's put it this way. Um, before we let you go, we have to ask. And for since this is a podcast, you guys cannot see Barb's room, but it's like amazing. You, your room, it's full of Star Wars posters. And, you know, like we said in the very beginning, if you're not following her on Twitter, go do that. What is your favorite Star Wars character? Uh, Mon Mothma, actually. Um, so I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but if you're doing some internet sleuthing, you might find an alter ego out there that I'm aligned to. And go and come hit me back, I guess, to let me know what you found. Um, but, you know, I think it's as, as a girl growing up who's loved Star Wars for her entire life, it's very easy to assume that, you know, that, embodiment of female strength is Princess Leia. But I think I always enjoyed the notion of there's somebody a little bit more obscure out there, right? Um, you know, shows up as a character in the original trilogy only for a short time. Um, but just that that calm um, strength that was exuded through the actress that played that role in Return of the Jedi. Um, always appealed to me. And the notion that as people were breaking away from what is absolutely awful in that world and were centered around a female leader to, to take them out of the pit of despair to greatness, um, you know, there's something really important in that story that I always align to. Happy to know that they've been able to um, leverage the strength of that character again and again because, hey, I'm all up for... Disney and their pursuit of reusing the, the intellectual property that they have. I'm so in for that, but I'm so glad that that character has sort of had a, a second coming in other movies like Rogue One. So that's definitely my favorite. See, that's one thing I love about the podcast. You end up learning more about people than otherwise you didn't. Um, so anyway, thank you so much for joining us for the show today, Barb. And thank you all for listening in to another episode of One Vision. 